That's a good thing. Uh, and I heard not too long ago about two friends that had just returned from a uh, trip to Mexico, vacation to Mexico. And uh, as they came home, they were involved in the entertainment business, and they were looking at, you know, these theme parks, these X games and things like that. And one of the things that surrounded this particular uh, uh, theme park that they were doing was a bungee jumping experience. And uh, as they were putting it together and they saw how popular it had become, they were thinking that, man, you know, in Mexico we didn't see anything like that. But we did see cliff divers in Acapulco, and it seems like maybe something that would go over there. And we thought, they thought, man, we can make a ton of money if we can just get a similar business going in Mexico. So sure enough, they put the idea together, they got some financing, they went down there, they put the platform up, and their game plan was to open this business on Cinco de Mayo. Man, when there's a big celebration, it's a perfect time to do it. And so sure enough, they put up this, you know, the, the big tower, and they got everything together, and as they were doing this, it had, you know, obviously uh, created some curiosity, and crowds began to, to gather, and for finally the big day arrived. And the only way they could do it was that one of the two of them would have to jump because they couldn't convince anybody else to do this. And so they went up at the top of the platform, and the one guy said, well, I'll go ahead and do it. And he jumps down, and sure enough, you hear the crowd go crazy, and he jumps down, and he comes springing back up. And, they, and the second guy went to reach him, and he couldn't get him, but he noticed he had a couple of cuts on his face. But sure enough, he dropped back down again, and this time he comes up, man, he's got cuts, he's bruised, he's battered, he's beaten, and he can't reach him again. The third time he comes flying back up, and this guy's just about dead at this point. And he goes, what was the, was the rope? I mean, what, you know, what, was the bungee too long? What happened to you? He goes, he goes what's a pinata? <laughs> you know, just one of those details they missed. But, you know, as we've studied the first and second letters of the Apostle Paul to Timothy, I've come to believe Paul could, you know, definitely relate to our friends in Mexico. You know, there's no doubt Paul often felt like a pinata. You know, all one needs to do is read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 all that he endured for the sake of the gospel. I mean, he was beaten, he was bruised, he was battered, he was stoned, he was left for dead. He was shipwrecked four times, and that account only says three, but there was one to follow. He was continually put in prison for no cause of his own. And yet at the end of the day, he came to this conclusion that he shares with Timothy, and you know what? It was all worth it. For the cause of Christ. When he was in prison in, uh, in Rome and he wrote the, a letter to the Philippians, he said, you know, I, I know that you've all heard about my circumstances, that I'm in prison, you know, unjustly so, here we go again. But the reality of it is, is that I want you to know that my imprisonment was for the furtherance of the gospel. And what a wonderful thing that God has done through these circumstances in my life to bring men and women to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. See, he recognized that all the circumstances of his life were totally in God's control and had a purpose and a plan behind it. You know, I want to encourage you to understand and to recognize that that is true of each and every one of us. That every circumstance of our life has come approved by God for his purposes and for his kingdom. There isn't anything, as we read through scripture, that can happen to any one of us that God doesn't first approve and allow to take place for his purposes and for his kingdom. And so we, can't, we, we can never get sidetracked or, or get off to a side, uh, you know, and, and start to, to focus on human beings instead of on what God's trying to do and trying to accomplish. You know, in this letter in 2 Timothy, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4, where we pick up on Paul's message to Timothy, where he says to him, Timothy, fulfill your mission that God has given you. Fulfill your ministry. 
do what God has ordained for you to do and finish strong. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, we read these words again. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. You know, there are three main points that Paul brings out to our attention as they relate to how you and I can finish strong and uh, fulfill the ministry that God has entrusted individually to each one of us. In a simple sense, the whole idea of having a ministry simply means to serve God by serving others. You know, the ministry that God has given us means simply that you and I are to serve God as we serve others. We have a specific responsibility. There are some things that are in general that all of us are subject to. There are other things that are very specific in nature. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'll show you one of the things that God has entrusted to us that is in general for all Christians. We have a responsibility, and it's outlined for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, therefore, in verse 17, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. It says, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trans- tr- uh, trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were entreating through us We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Notice what he says, that, you know, if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. He's born again, as Jesus said. You'll never get to the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And to be born again isn't a matter of human will or human desire or human effort. It's a miracle that takes place from above, from God, to those who recognize their sinfulness, turn from sin, throw themselves upon the mercy of God, trusting what God says is true, that Jesus Christ came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost, including you and I, so that you and I would believe on him and not perish. Believe that he died on the cross for our sins. Believe that he was raised again from the dead. According to what the Bible taught, would happen exactly as it did. He says that you and I who have come into that relationship with God by receiving Christ as our Savior, to him he has given to us, those who have trusted in him, he has given us the right to be called children of God to those who believe in his name. And as a result, he has entrusted to us the message that I just shared with you, that God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He says, we we have been entrusted as if God was entreating through us. 
The word entreating is begging people to take into consideration the message that we're sharing. Begging people to consider, you know, that, wait a minute, are, are you perfect? No, I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. Well, God's standard is perfection. And, and we're to, to, God is using us to entreat upon others, to, to cause, you know, God's almost saying, through us, he's begging men and women to believe him and trust in him and what he has done on our behalf on the cross through Christ. He's saying that, therefore, because we, he has committed to us the word of reconciliation, that simply means this. If somebody wants to know how to get right with God, we know. We've got the message. We, it's been entrusted to us. We can tell them how to be right with God. We can tell them how to get to heaven. We can tell them how their sins can be forgiven. We can tell them all of that because we know. And that's the message that we're to proclaim. He says, and therefore, since that message has been entrusted to us, we are sent into this world as ambassadors for God's sake to share the message of God's love to a lost and fallen world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Every other world religion, every other message that's out there tells man that if you do enough good things, that you can work your way to heaven. And it's only Christianity as it's set apart from everything else that's taught and proclaimed in the world that says there's nothing that man can ever do because God has done it all. And he has reached down to us in the person of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross and the power of his resurrection. And we believe that because if the resurrection didn't take place, then everything we believe is foolishness. And what makes Christianity stand out from every other religion is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and he is alive today. And that is the message that we share. People don't want to hear that, and we'll talk more about that. They want to just hear what they want to hear because it's a lot more comfortable than hearing what God has to say. But we are ambassadors. We're sent into this world entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation to serve others in such a way that they too can come to a point in their life where they've got to make a decision as to who do you say that Jesus Christ is. You'll notice throughout the Bible that Jesus often brought people to that point in his life. Who do you say that I am? Oh, you're a great teacher. You're a good guy. You're, you know, you're all right with me, the Doobie Brothers. You know? And it's like, every, every, you know, there it goes. But the point that Jesus said was, but I don't care. Who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the Savior of the world, the Son of the living God. And he said, blessed to you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for man did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Only God can reveal the true identity of Jesus Christ, and he reveals it to those who are broken and contrite of heart, who have recognized what God said is true, and they have come to him and thrown themselves on his mercy, and God reveals who Jesus is. You see, as we go through this passage back in 2 Timothy chapter 4, we recognize that you know, there are three things that Paul has been speaking of. The first thing he says is, man, we all got to face our accountability before God. He's saying face our accountability before God. He solemnly charges in the presence of God... He says God sees everything. As ambassadors, he is telling us in, in the presence of God to go out into the world and warn them of the judgment of God and the consequences of sin and also to let them know, but I got good news for you too, and that is that God loves us. And even when we're in rebellion against God, running from God, want nothing to do with God, he was still hunting us down. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost in the presence of God. The second thing he talked about is, is that we are to follow what the Bible teaches. And we started to look at this in great detail the last time that we were together. 
But if you remember, that takes a recognition of what does God teach as far as our responsibility as it relates to this ministry that God has given us. To fulfill a ministry, we need to know, number one, what it is, and number two, how to do it. Well, the first thing he says is to fulfill it, we've got to preach the word of God which is just what we talked about. The fact is that no one can come to a knowledge of God, their creator, unless someone tells them. No one can believe in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross and the resurrection unless they first hear what he did. And so therefore, the, 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 the exhortation is, we don't have any other choice. We're to proclaim the message of God, which is found in his word, because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. No one could ever be saved from the condemnation and judgment of God and from the consequence of sin unless they hear what the remedy is for that illness or that ailment. We're to preach the word, we're to be ready, we're to be in the word of God regularly so that we're in a position where we're ready to go as if we're coming off the bench taking an athletic illustration and there's a, there's a ton of them in this passage. That's why I love reading the Bible. You know, There's a ton of athletic illustrations in here and what he's saying is you've got to be ready as a guy like Orlando Palmero sitting on the bench all through the season and one day they turn to him and say, it's your turn to get off the bench, go up and, and, and play the game. Always being ready for that moment in time when it's convenient, when it's not convenient. You know, he doesn't sit there and say, but, 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 but coach, I'm right in the middle of having a hot dog. You know, I, I got, look at all this, man, sunflower seeds, bazooka bubble gum, man, we've got a whole layout here. You know, it's like, no, it's time, go in, get in the game, be ready at any moment's notice when it's convenient, when it's not, when people think you're crazy and, and when they think, wow, you know what, I really want to hear what you have to say. I don't know about you, but it's been a long time since anybody's ever come to me and said, hey, can you give me directions? I want to know after I die how I can get to heaven. It's, it's been very long since anybody's ever approached me in the construction industry saying, hey, listen, I got a question for you. I was just here out on the job site and thinking, man, you know what? If I fall off this building and die, I want to know what's going to happen to me. Do you have any idea? You know, it, it just doesn't happen like that. You know, I read through Acts 16 and they're all in the jail and, you know, when an earthquake happens and the prison doors are open and the jailer runs over to him and says, what must I do to be saved? And we're all sitting around going like this. Well, then I'll know it's the time to answer. Well, no, I mean, yeah, it is then, and it is over then, too. It is in the daily walk of our life and every communication that we have with other people. There's always a time to discuss what really matters, and that is the destiny of the human soul. What happens to me when I die? How, what do I got to do to get right with God? Be ready in season and out of season when it's convenient, when it's not, when they ask you specifically, and even when they're asking in generalities. Be ready to give an answer for our defense for the hope that's within you. Sanctify the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart. Always being ready to give an answer or defense for the hope that's within you. He says reprove, which is to convince people that what God says is true, that there is sin in the world. And you know what? I don't know why that's such a tough sell in a world that is just so screwed up. Have you ever think something about that? Why is that so hard for people to believe that we live in a lost and fallen and screwed up, demented world? All you got to do is listen to the news. All you got to do is read the newspaper. And all you got to do is have a conversation with somebody you work with. You know, the reality of it is, is that we are messed up. And if you knew how messed up the person was sitting next to you this morning, you'd move. But you would move closer to somebody else, and then you would be next to them. Would have all kind of problems here. If you really knew what was in the heart of the person next to you, you'd be very frightened. Because we live in a fallen world. 
And what reproving is, is trying to convince people that, you know what, what God says about us is true. There's none righteous, no, not one. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. If God is perfect, none of us are. That shouldn't be that difficult to convince people, should it? Well, but here's, the, here's where the tough part is. Rebuking is now convincing that person. It's easy for us all to agree that we live in a messed up world, but it gets a little more personal. It's like I was talking to somebody not too long ago, and I'll inter- in- inject this as we go through this. But, you know, it, it was the old thing where I told you that, you know, preaching is when you can make a general truth known to everybody, and, you know, no one really is offended by that. Meddling is when you start to say, but you're guilty of that. See, when it comes down on a personal level, then it gets a little more difficult. But we're to reprove and rebuke, which now brings it from, we're all in agreement the world's messed up. Now, are you in agreement that you're part of the world, therefore you're messed up? Hey, who do you think you are telling me I'm messed up? Well, I'm just asking you a question. Are you perfect? No. Have you ever lied? Have you ever cheated? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever, you know, and you hold the standard of God against them and say, have you ever violated this? You know, like the Cajun Ten Commandments. I love that. You know, simple. It's right to the point. Are you guilty? Well, yes, I am. Therefore, you're under the condemnation and the guilt that God lays out in Scripture. That you're not perfect. You're not righteous. None of us are. So don't feel bad about it. You know, I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. You're not worse than me. I'm not worse than you. We're just all before God flat out guilty. Therefore, we exhort, which is to encourage people to now seek God's forgiveness. God, because what I just heard I believe is true and I know it's true of my life, therefore, if I'm guilty before you and I know that I am, I come to you and I ask for forgiveness. And I believe what you say as far as Jesus Christ, that he came into the world, that he died, that he rose again. And I trust what you say that if I invite him into my life or receive him as my savior, that I become a child of yours. I don't understand much of this and I'm not sure how it all works, but you know what? That's what I want more than anything in life, to know you in a personal way. And the Bible says, he who calls upon the Lord will not be forsaken. He who calls upon the Lord will not be disappointed. But there's more than just recognizing what we should do and, and uh, Paul goes on to Timothy to tell him how we should also react to people, and that's in a proper way. Notice what he says back in 2 Timothy. He says, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, what? With great patience and instruction. Great patience and instruction. What's the proper reaction that you and I should have towards people as we share this message with them? We need to have great patience and give instruction. You know, I don't know about you, but, you know, oftentimes in life when I'm sharing or talking to somebody, it gets frustrating as to how stubborn they can be and not examine the facts. And then all I have to do is look back on my life and realize when I was first confronted with the truth of the gospel that I wasn't in a big hurry and readily available to say, wow, that's what I've been looking for. Thanks for sharing that with me. It was over a period of time that through great patience on the part of those God brought into my life who shared that truth with me. And it's like, yeah, I know I'm a sinner, but... You see, every time I would answer a question, it was always followed by the qualifier, but... Yeah, I know I'm not perfect, but... I know I'm not, you know, I know I'm a sinner, but... I'm not sure about believing in Jesus. I'm not sure about what that means. I mean, how can he die on a cross and that be you know, effective for my sin. And, and yeah, you know, I heard he rose from the dead and there's evidence all throughout the world. And, you know, but, 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 it was always but, but, but. And you know what the but was all about? But I didn't want God telling me what to do. 
See, I didn't want God changing my life, even though my life was screwed up, and, and I didn't like aspects of it, but there are other aspects I really did like, and that was the selfish part of living any way that I, that I wanted to, without God now coming in and start telling me how to live my life. So it was kind of like, yeah, is there any way I can get a ticket to heaven and still live any way that I want on earth? That's what I was looking for. But, you know, I, I know I'm a sinner, but, I know my life's messed up, but, I know our marriage isn't everything that should be, but, I know I don't treat my wife like I should and I'm, I'm embarrassed by it at times, but, but, but. Well, no buts. No buts. And the great patience of those around me slowly God used to chip away that hardness of heart. You know, I, I had a, a, a gentleman who uh, played on the Rams football team when they were in the area, and, and um, he got involved in our Bible study, and through that Bible study, became aware of his sinfulness, became aware of his need for forgiveness, and he asked Jesus Christ to come into his life for God to forgive him of his sins. He called me last week, and, and God has led him into a ministry, and he, fi- he started a church outside of Atlanta for inner city. Uh, inner city kids was a, the main focus of it, it, the beginning, and it, and it evolved into a church. And he called me, and, he was, and I could sense he was frustrated. And he said, Chuck, let me ask you something. All those times that we came to your house, and you knew the kind of stuff that we were doing and the things that were going on, and you came with us on a road at times, and you caught guys in the very act of things they were doing that they shouldn't have been doing that were wrong before God. He said, let me ask you something. How'd you keep from drop-kicking us? <laughs> and I said, well, well, one reason was, you know, you're, you're six foot six and, and 285 pounds. So there, there was wisdom in not telling you to bend over. I want to drop kick you. So, but there were many times where I personally felt like, man, you know what? You really need drop kicked at this point in your life. And he said, man, I'm dealing with people in our church that it's like they continue to do the same things over and over again, and they wonder why they are now uh, reaping what they've sown. And I just want to take a two-by-four upside their head. You know, I said, well, if you're going to use one, you know, at least carve a Bible verse in it. You know, let's, let's try to be biblical here, you know. And he goes, I just, want to, I just want to smack them upside their head. I talked to a friend not too long ago who chose to sin before God, and he knew what he was doing was wrong, and he did it anyway. And in my conversation with him this week, and I hope this isn't offensive to anybody, but, but, but it shows you the complexity of when we choose to do what's wrong before God. He said to me, he said, Chuck, what the hell was I thinking? He said, you weren't. You weren't thinking. And the reason you weren't thinking is because you chose to sin and do what was wrong before God. And the Bible pictures sin quite vividly as darkness, as an entanglement, and as a snare. There's anybody that walks into a snare and says, I think I'll walk into a snare and see how far up in the tree it'll pull me. You know, there's anybody that's walking and says, look, oh, that looks like a pit. I think I'll dive in it and see how bad it hurts. Listen to me. Sin is always presented as something very attractive. It's always attractive. If it wasn't attractive, none of us would nibble on the bait. James chapter 1. When, when, when we have our own lusts are enticed. You know, it, it, it's out there for us. It's always dangled in front of us. And it always looks attractive. If it didn't look attractive, you wouldn't be attracted to it. Right? I mean, no one goes fishing and sticks, you know, a, a, a Goodyear tire on the end of a hook, throws it in and goes, boy, I wonder if they'll nibble on this. 
I mean, you always got to make it attractive. Ooh, that looks good. I don't know how fish thinks, but I know how some people think, and there's not much difference between the two sometimes, is there? It's kind of like, you know, that looks good. What do you think? You think, mm, that looks pretty good. It looks like something else I ate. I don't know what they're thinking, but it's attractive. And same with sin. See, sin's attractive. And he goes, man, what was I thinking? And the reality of it was, I'll tell you what you weren't thinking. You weren't thinking biblically. You weren't thinking, God, is this pleasing to you what I'm about to do? You weren't thinking, no, Lord, you know, is this a trap or is this dangerous or my head? Because as, you, as I ask you these questions, you realize that all through the process, God was warning you, don't go there, don't go there, don't do that, don't do that. You know what God says. You know what the Word of God says. The Holy Spirit for Christians living within us says, warning, danger, Will Robinson. But he doesn't say that because he knows our name, so he talks to us in the first person. So, you know, but to Will Robinson, that's what he says. Just in case you're wanting. Then... We go great patience and instruction. Instruction is getting people to go into the word of God to see what God has to say about that which they're doing. See, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, separate bone from marrow. We've got to get people back to scripture. And in my conversations with them, it was, well, let, let me read this passage to you. Let's look at what God has to say. Read these three or four or five passages and let God speak to you with great patience and instruction. Folks, when we feel like drop-kicking people, there's something wrong with our heart because we've begun to take it personally. See, when you want to drop-kick your kids for not listening, it's because you're frustrated with them and you begin to take it personal that somehow or another they're rejecting you and your authority. Let me just tell you something. They're rejecting God and His authority. Our responsibility is to train them in the ways they should go, that when they're old, they won't depart from it. Our responsibility to our friends and to our family and those who don't know Christ is to teach them God's truth. But you know what? Don't ever take it personal when people reject the message of God. Because we are just the messengers. We're not the authors or originators of the message. So don't get frustrated by it. And he says, you know what, and you also need to realize how people will respond to God's truth. Go back to 2 Timothy chapter 4 and notice what he says. He said, you know what, here's what you need, here's what you need to expect. There's a time coming and is now here when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside the myths. He's saying that they, who are they? They are those in his church who profess to be believers, but who, as time will prove, really are not. See, you can profess to be a believer, but not possess eternal life. You can sit here in church and look like from the outside that you're one of those who have come to faith in Christ, but God's not deceived. He's not mocked by that. He knows our heart and whether we've ever indeed come to faith in Christ. And so what he's saying is that as you preach the truth or tell people the message that God wants you to tell them, don't be, can, don't be surprised that there will be those in, in your midst who will not endure sound doctrine. They will not endure it. They will not, literally, they won't be in it for the long haul because, you know what, they don't like what you're going to say. They don't like what you're going to teach. They will not endure it. It says sound doctrine, literally, the word means that which is healthy. Sound means healthy. It means that they will not endure the things that they need to hear that will be good for their spiritual health. 
but they'll want to hear from those who will tell them what they want to hear, much to their destruction. The time is coming when they will not endure sound doctrine. If you question what I say as to the fact that there are people even here this day and those listening to this tape who may profess to be Christians who truly are not, read the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, the parable of the sower and the seed. There were those who received the word gladly, but they had no roots within themselves. And as persecution came along, and as things in their life that brought to a point, do you believe God's truth, or do you want to do what you want to do, they begin to separate. The two go in different directions. The worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches also will separate those who profess to be Christians from those who genuinely are, according to the biblical definition. See, a lot of times we can't tell, but as time goes on, the word endurance means that over the long haul, our true colors will be known. See, they will not endure, and as a result of not enduring, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. And that is a situation in much of the church today, even in churches that once were genuinely evangelical, where the Bible was the divine standard for belief and living. Now we've got churches that tell people what they want to hear instead of the message that has been entrusted to us by God. Give you an example. Driving down the street, someone pointed it out. I had to go check it out for myself because I couldn't believe that this would actually take place. But then again, why shouldn't I? There's a church not too far from here, and out on their front marquee, on their billboard out in front, talking about, you know, something about their church or the title of the message or whatever, it said this The Bible taken seriously, but not literally. The Bible taken seriously, but not literally. Wow, that makes it cause I want to stop and think for a second. And I'm sitting there going, the Bible, you can take it serious, but just don't take it literal. How can you do that? It's like saying, you know, a sign you're driving the road that says bridge out ahead. Take it seriously, but certainly not literally. Look for the hidden meaning in it. And as you're going off the road where the bridge was and was not any longer, you'll go, man, you know what? I should have taken that sign literally. Thin ice. Take it seriously. Just don't take it literally. The Bible, we need to take it seriously, but please don't take it literally. What is that kind of nonsense? If you're driving by and you ever see a church with a sign like that, okay, here's a sign that I got for you. Take it seriously and literally. Run as fast as you can. What in the world is that? They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Dr. Marvin Vincent writes in his book, Word Studies of the New Testament, he says this, They shall invite teachers en masse in periods of unsettled faith, skepticism, and mere curious speculation in matters of religion. Teachers of all kinds swarm like flies in Egypt. Since the demand creates a supply, the hearers invite and shape their own preachers. If the people desire a calf to worship, a ministerial calf maker is readily found. And that's true today. It's been said that the pulpits of today are basically just a sounding board for the people. You know, you tell me what you want to say. It's like politicians. You know, you tell me what you want. I'll come up and tell you that's what I'll give you. And you know what? And you know it's not going to be true, but you're going to like what I say anyway, and so you'll vote for me. See, but the, the ministry of God's word of reconciliation isn't negotiable. It really doesn't matter to me or any messenger of God what you say or what you want to hear because I'm here to deliver the message from God. He goes on and writes, 
of, it, of tickling ears. He says, Clement of Alexandria describes certain teachers as scratching and tickling in no human way the ears of those who eagerly desire to be scratched. He said, some come to hear, not to learn, just as we go to the theater for pleasure, uh, to delight our ears with the speaking or the voice of the, or plays. What a picture of our day. As someone has said, some people go to church to close their eyes and others to eye the clothes. And it's true. Dr. Warren Wiersbe, who was a uh, pastor of the Moody Church, said they want religious entertainment from Christian performers who will tickle their ears. We have a love for novelty in the churches today. Emotional movies, pageants, foot-stomping music, colored lights, etc. The man who simply opens the Bible and shares the message from God is rejected with the shallow religious entertainer, while the shallow religious entertainer becomes a celebrity. And verse 4 indicates that itching ears soon will become deaf ears as people turn away from the truth and believe man-made fables. And that's exactly what the passage says. They will turn away from the truth. Men and women, the word of God is absolute truth. It is not relativism. It is not something to be negotiated. It is not something like the other laws of the universe. You cannot negotiate with God gravity. We can do anything that we can to try to, you know, to, to violate the principle of gravity, but in the reality, at the end, bottom line is this, what comes up is going to come back down. See, and the same with spiritual principles or the laws of God. They're not negotiable. They're fixed. They're set in the universe, and the word of God is set for all of eternity. There's only two things that endure forever, the word of God and the souls of people. That's it. Everything else that we see is temporary. So it goes that we will... They will deny the truth of the, of, the, of the word of God and they will turn aside and look for validation to fill their own desires. It was the self-will of Adam and Eve that led to the fall and it's that same naturally transmitted self-will that has driven all humanity ever since. And if you don't think that's true, ask yourself this question. If you know someone who is doing what is wrong before God, who knows the truth and chooses to do wrong, there's one thing you'll always find about that person who's choosing to do what's wrong before God. They will try to gather as much support from people in their life as they can in order to validate what it is that they want to do. They will look for those and they will gain an audience and say, you know what, do you think this is wrong? And they'll always find people in their life who are doing the same thing that'll say, no, I don't think it's wrong. And you know what, though? It really doesn't matter because God's not moved in any shape or manner as far as, oh, well, my bad, God says. If enough of you think I made a mistake, I must have. That's insane. Ask, you know, check the historic record of Sodom and Gomorrah. They had a whole bunch of people that were all in agreement that what God said was wrong. And God said, well, you forgot one thing. I'm God, you're not, bye-bye. And that's what happens. But every time I find a person who is living in sin, a sinful life, I will find them trying to gather support from others who are doing the same thing. As if somehow or another that changes the truth. It doesn't. I had a lady not too long ago. She sat here. She thought I was a, a, a good Bible teacher. Today, I'm an idiot. Some of you are going, well, we knew that. We could have told her that all, you know, a long time ago. But it's like, you know, one day, wow, man, the guy just teaches truth compromise just lays it out as it is today as she's guilty of sin before god i've become a moron and she has accumulated for herself all her old non-christian friends who are all saying the same thing yeah you're right the guy's an idiot and you know what the wonderful thing about it is i really don't care because i'm not running for office 
I'm not worried about a vote. And as a messenger of God, you can't get hung up on whether people like you or not. Because you know why? We're here to please God and not man. We already learned that. Our greatest accountability is to God and not to one another. We are accountable to each other on a certain scale, on a certain level. But you know, at the end of the day, I will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account of the message that I shared with you and I had better be true and honest to the Word of God. See, because what happens is, if people don't like what they're being told, then they will turn aside and look for the hidden meaning in the Bible. You know, they'll look for the hidden meaning. Well, I know that's what it said, but there's got to be a hidden meaning. Thou shalt not steal. Well... You know, it sounds, it sounds simple enough, but there's got to be a hidden meaning. I know what it is. Thou shalt not steal until you want to. Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's goods until they look good. You know, thou shalt not commit adultery until you're just not happy in your marriage and you just don't have the same feelings for each other like you used to. Thou shalt not kill unless it's an unwanted child and that child will cramp your style. See the problem that we have? We're always buying into the lie and not trusting the truth of the Word of God. They will turn aside and find people that will tell them what they want to hear. And how should we respond to all of this? Man, you know what he says in verse 5? He says we're to respond prayerfully. Be sober. Be sober actually means what you think it means. It means, you know what, don't be drunk. Don't be influenced by foolish, by foolish thoughts. Don't come under the influence of, of you know, drugs or alcohol, but be what? Filled with the Holy Spirit for you know, drunkenness is dissipation. But being filled by the Spirit of God, we see truth. It's a command to be balanced, to be alert. He says, you know what, but you be sober in all things. He says, endure hardship. You know, we've seen that throughout the time, that those who are committed to do what's right before God will suffer persecution. You know what? And sometimes pain is good when it's pain that comes with, with standing firm upon the truth of the Word of God. You know what? From a human perspective, when people don't like me, I'm just going to tell you, I'm not that as callous as I pretend to be. I struggle with that. It bothers me. I, I'm hurt by that. You know, I'm hurt by decisions that are made. But that's on a human scale. But on the divine level, as we take away and set that aside, we're to realize, you know what, there are times in life when you're on the cutting edge and doing what God calls you to do, when you're fulfilling the ministry that He's given you, there will be times when, you know what, you're going to have to endure hardship. There's nothing easy about being used by God. There was nothing easy for Paul about being, you know, being put in prison so that the gospel could be furthered. But that's all on a human level. He says, do the work. Do the work of an evangelist. You know, there are people who are gifted as evangelists. Billy Graham has demonstrated that for 50 years. But also, he's telling Timothy and all of us to do the work of an evangelist. He's not saying be an evangelist. He's saying do the work of an evangelist. And the whole purpose or the work of an evangelist is what? To share the good news. To evangelize. To tell people good news. And the best news that anyone can hear after they hear that they are lost, that they are sinners, that they're on the road to hell, they're condemned for God. The best news anybody can hear, but God loves you anyway. And He sent Christ to die for you. And if you believe in Him, you shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the work of an evangelist, to tell people good news. The only problem is we've got to tell them the bad news first in order for them to realize they need to hear the good news. And He says, fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry. And I want to take a moment, and I want to elaborate on that in closing as we look at these last couple of verses. And what He's, what he's basically saying is this. 
He says, finish the job. Finish the job. Not only face our accountability before God and follow what the Bible teaches, but he's saying, finish the job that God has given you to do. In a very general way, I've already mentioned that as Christians, we have a responsibility to do things that all of us are responsible to do. We're to love the Lord our God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We're to, you know, we're to study the Word of God. We're to memorize, meditate on it. We're, we're to, uh, to not deviate from it to the left or the right, but to follow it completely so that we have success. We're to do all those things. We're to share the good news with those who need to hear it uh, in order that they can believe. We're to do all of those things. But there are some things that you and I need to do that are specifically related, related to just you and me. At the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus calls Peter and he gives him an assignment. And as he tells him, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? He says, yeah, I love you, I love you. Well, tend my flock, do this, do that. And then he's going, but you know what though? But what about this guy over here? What's he supposed to do for you? And Jesus Christ told him the same thing that I will share with you, and that is this. You stop worrying about what God's work is for someone else. You follow him. You follow him. You do what he is calling you to do. You use the gifts that He has given you to use for the equipping of saints, for the work of ministry, and to build up the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You do what you're supposed to do. One of the things that just frustrates me beyond no end, and I think maybe you're picking up on it right here, and I'm going to have to kick in that great patience and instruction point and apply it, but there's, some, there's one thing that frustrates me more than anything else in life, and that is to have others pointing fingers at others as to what they should be doing in their relationship with God, while they do nothing but point out what they should be doing. Stop worrying about what everybody else is doing, and you follow Him. Because you know what? It'll just be you and Him at the judgment seat of Christ. And I guarantee if you're going there in mind to say, but, 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 but what about them? He'll say, but, 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 but what about John chapter 20? where I called Peter, and I told Peter, don't worry about John. Remember that passage? Uh, yes, Lord. Well, what do you think it meant? And he'll say, at that point, you should have taken that literally. <laughs> Not to put words in our Lord's mouth, but I'm thinking that he's going to say, you know what, take it literally. You follow him. You finish the job that God has entrusted to you to do, and don't worry about anybody else. And here's where it comes down to three different things. Number one, he says, you know what? As you go back to 2 Timothy... He says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. What he's saying is, hey, you know what? I'm going to die. As a Roman citizen, he couldn't be crucified. It was only left for those who were enemies of Rome. And the only death that was appropriate for a Roman citizen who violated whatever law it is that they violated was that they would get their heads chopped off. And so what he was saying to them is, ultimately, soon, I'm going to get my head chopped off and I will pour out blood as a drink offering of the Old Testament, a sacrifice that's pleasing to God. And you know why? Because, you know what? I've given my life as a living sacrifice, and it is no sacrifice for me to go to my death for my Lord and Savior. Because there's no one that can harm me, there's nothing that can happen to me that hasn't already been ordained by God. So no man can kill me unless that's God's plan. It's appointed for man to die once, then comes judgment. You and I, our death is in the hands of God who know Jesus Christ. And the bottom line is, even if you don't, God knows the appointed time for you to die. And he's saying to the world, hey, you know what? Don't take for granted the grace of God that gives you another day to live. Respond to the message, fall on your knees, and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Because you may not have another opportunity. 
He's saying that, you know what, I'm going to die, but don't worry about it because nothing can happen to me that hasn't been ordained by God. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, says the Bible. Absent from the body, I'm confident of this, Paul said. Absent from the body, I'm present with the Lord. I can't lose. I've lived my life for Christ's sake. I'll die as a sacrifice to the life that I live. Praise God. Isn't that great? And some of you are sitting there going, that's nuts. But you know what? As you live a life as a sacrifice to God, you'll realize at the end of your life that you're not giving up anything at all. Because what he said was, he goes, the day of my departure is at hand. The word departure is beautiful. It means four different things in Greek. To hoist anchor and set sail. You know what he's saying? He's saying, man, you know what? I'm sitting here in the Mamertine prison in Rome. I'm stuck in this dungeon, this dank and dirty, stinky, rat-infested, sewer-filled dungeon. And you know what? I'm about ready to set sail to eternity. What a beautiful word picture. It also means to take down a tent. Many times in his missionary journeys as he traveled, they, they pitched a tent, they took it down, they went. All he was saying was, I'm just leaving, I'm going from one place to the next. This isn't the end of my existence. The departure is at hand. The loosing of a prisoner. He's saying, you know what? These chains that I'm in are about to be taken off. Oh, they'll still be on my corpse, but that doesn't really matter because I'm not going to be here anymore. Absent from the body, I'll be present with the Lord. See, the time of my departure is at hand. Isn't that great? When our friend was dying recently, I gave a book to her mom. It was one minute after you die, and it gave a biblical overview of what to expect as a believer as far as death is concerned and as an unbeliever. But from a believer's standpoint, she was able to sit next to her at her bedside and say, you know what, this is the promise of God. This is what God is going to say. You are going to be set free from this body that's racked with cancer and bed sores and, and everything that you're struggling with. The day is coming for your departure, which is the day you will leave this corpse, this body, this tent, and you will be in the presence of your Savior. Praise God. She's there today because I know, according to the Word of God and the promises of God, that she had trusted in Christ as her Savior. She departed. She didn't leave. She wasn't lost. You know, oh, I'm sorry you lost your daughter. I didn't lose her. I know where she is. She's in the presence of her Savior. She's not lost. And we didn't say goodbye. When I kissed her, I said, we'll see you soon. Because we'll see one another again, those who are in Christ. The dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive will be caught up with them. We'll be translated in a moment of time. And that's what the truth of the Word of God is. He says, comfort one another with my words and not with your opinions. He said that he was dedicated. Notice what he says, I have fought. The word have fought in, in Greek is he agonized. You know what? I fought, man. It was agon- I, I agonized in my Christian life. Not only against those who would stop me from sharing the truth, but even with myself, we as believers agonize against the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's a constant battle to do what's right before God. I agonize. I don't know about you, but I agonize daily to do what's right before God as the temptations are thrown at me one after another, after another, after another. He says, I agonize. I have fought. The Christian life is no cakewalk. It's a spiritual battle and we've got an enemy who wants to devour us and destroy us and cause us to do those things that are wrong and buy into the lies so that our, we're, our, we are effectively neutralized for the cause of Christ. I don't know about you, but I agonize daily to do what's right before God and the struggle of my own flesh that wants to do what it wants to do when it wants to do it and not do what God wants me to do. He says, I have fought. I take comfort in that, knowing that this genuine, wonderful man of God had the same struggles that you and I. I have fought, but he says, but I also, I have finished the course. 
when he was put, when he was set in place in the race of the Christian life, when he was born again in a moment of time, and, and Christ paid his entry fee, he was put into the race, and he said that, and I was put into the race by Christ, and I have finished the race. I have finished the course. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the pain and despised the shame. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. You know, the encumbrances that keep us from running as we should, lay them aside. They're not sinful in themselves, but they distract us from being focused on the eternal picture. Lay them aside. And the sin that so easily entangles us. Listen to me, folks. There's nothing that will destroy you quicker on the race that we're running for Christ's sake than to get involved in sin. And God clearly reveals what it is. And He gives us the Spirit of God within us who warns us and says, don't do that. Don't go there. Don't say that. Don't go that direction. We're to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us. Don't ever be at the point in your life where you're sharing with some other believer, what the hell is wrong with me? Don't ever get there. And you know how you can avoid getting there? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on the finish line. Don't look around. Don't buy into the lies. Don't look and see what everybody else around you is doing. Don't encourage and feed the appetite of the wolf that's within you that wants to do what's wrong before God. Thanks be to our Savior, Jesus Christ, who sets us free from this body of sin. Paul said, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. What what is wrong with me? He says, but thanks be to God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has set us free from sin. Fix your eyes on Jesus. That friend of mine who got in trouble that he got into took his eyes off of Jesus. He took his eyes out of the Word of God. He didn't love God wholeheartedly anymore. He began to love himself more than he loved God. He wanted to please his own selfish lusts and desires more than he wanted to live to please his Savior. And you know what? And I don't condemn him for that. With great patience and instruction, we met and spent time together. Why? Because I know that by the grace of God, I could be in the same situation, and so could you. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. What's he talking about? Have kept has to do with a treasure, of of guarding a treasure. And you know what the treasure that God has given to every believer? The faith, the Christian faith, as it's summarized in the Word of God. I have guarded it with all of my might. The truth that God has given me that sets me free from the lies of the devil. I have guarded it. And he goes on to say, you know what? In the future, here's his destiny, and here's all of ours who love the appearance of Christ and have trusted in Him as Savior. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Not these stupid crummy little crowns that you guys get when you run the Olympics, the little wreath, you know, with the garland and the oak leaves and, you know, that are perishable. He told him about that in 1 Corinthians 9. Read it at the end of the chapter. He says, what's laid up for me and set up for me and safekeeping is the crown of righteousness, which we just learned when we were talking about the ministry of reconciliation, that God in Christ is reconciling the world to Himself, that you and I who trusted in Christ are the righteousness of God. The righteous judge who award me on that day, and not only me, but also to all who loved his appearing. Let me ask you a question. In closing, do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? 
Do you long for the day of His appearing? He says that those of us who are in Christ, all things pass away and all things become new. In closing, of all the things that we learned as it relates to fulfilling our ministry, I want to leave you with one last impression of what it means to keep the faith that has been entrusted to us. To value the treasure of God's Word that we have at our disposal on a regular basis to spend time with and and, and in fellowship with God. The story is told of a young French girl who had been born blind. And after she learned to read by touch, a friend gave her a braille, a copy of the Gospel of Mark. So that she read it so much that her fingertips grew callous. And she was having a hard time reading the words. And so what she did was she snipped off the ends of those calluses on her fingers so that they'd be more sensitive to, to hearing what God has to say through her fingers. Unfortunately, when she cut off the tips of her fingers, they grew back and they were even harder than they were before. And she had no feeling in her fingers. And she could not feel what she had previously. I think, man, so many of us can't feel what we had previously because our hearts had grown cold to God because we're entertaining sin and doing what's wrong. But it said that as she picked up this work of the Gospel of Mark and she kissed it and she said, Au revoir, au revoir, farewell. Farewell, she said, sweet word of my heavenly Father. And as she kissed this document goodbye, she realized that she could feel it with her lips. And her lips were more sensitive than her fingertips have ever been. And she spent the rest of her life reading the Word of God with her lips and taking it into her life. I say, God help us all that you and I have access to this great treasure and we take it for granted on a regular basis. God help us that we become a culture who accumulate for themselves teachers according to our own desires to tell us what we want to hear instead of the message that God wants us to know, the truth of God. And Jesus said it best, and I'll close with this. Sanctify them, O Father, Believers, according to your truth, for your word is truth. Father, thank you for this time to be together. As we leave here today and we consider this week as our country celebrates Thanksgiving, it is my prayer that we all have an attitude of gratitude for what you have done for us. Even when we were rebellion and rejecting you, you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die on our behalf. God, I pray for those who are here that are professors of faith but not possessors, You know their heart, and ultimately they will give an account to you. That you would convict them now of their need for forgiveness and of your great love for them. That they will fall upon their knees and ask for your mercy and for your grace. For it's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God, so none of us can boast. For we are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do the works that you have created for us to do before the foundation of the world. God, it's my prayer that each one of us who have come to know you personally will fulfill the ministry that you have given to us individually so that we, like Paul, can say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. I look forward to the day of your appearing when you will bestow upon my head the crown of righteousness, not only to me, but to all who love your appearing. And all God's people said, Amen. Okay, next week, one service, 9.30. See you back here two weeks. We'll finish up this uh, second chapter.